Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, May 11th. Today we have an interview with Anurban Mahanti, uh, lead advisor for 7investing, our friend. I guess we can call him our friend now. Um, and we talk about cloud computing. We talk about his background. It's a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, any can, highlights for you? Uh, yeah, you can see why the team over at 7investing was so excited that he decided to join them as a lead yeah. advisor. Uh, we talk about cloud computing, which he's an expert in. Um, he has like a P- he has a PhD in I'm forgetting what his project. Oh, video streaming was his uh, project that he did his PhD on. And yeah, I mean he's just an expert in all things IT, all, it's, uh, all things technical. You know what I mean? Yes. And it was a great, a big background in academia, which bodes well. I feel like for, for, for investors, the, yeah, for the type of high tech stuff that he likes to invest in. Uh, overall, learned a ton. Uh, Definitely. That's all I can say. I learned a ton about the industry uh, as someone that doesn't isn't an expert about, it, and I think anyone, anyone else will. Okay. And before we get to our uh, before we get to the interview, uh, we have our sales pitch. Sales pitch time. Uh, by the way, we're raking in the sales, so uh, you know, good for everyone. Yeah, thank keep you. Keep them coming. Uh, it's really paying. You're paying for yourself your own subscription there when you subscribe to Seven Investing using our code CCM, and you're going to learn why 7investing is worth it with today's interview. Uh, so feel free to use our code. You get $10 yeah. off. Uh, I think we describe what they do more than enough times on here. But yeah, so, if you want to see Honor Bond's real picks, what he's yeah. investing in, $10 off with code CCM, you can check it out. Yeah. All right. Uh, without further ado, let's get to the interview. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. All right, today we are welcomed by Anurban Mahanti. Uh, am, am I saying that right, for, for starters? Um, I think you are saying that right. Okay, and um, you are a lead advisor for 7investing, our uh, flagship sponsor and friends of the show. Um, so before we kind of dive into uh, your strategy and some of the topics we want to discuss, why don't we talk about your background? So what, I mean, what drove you to investing, sort of what... Uh, what fields were you in at the start? Cool. Okay. So I am um, a computer scientist by training. Um, I, uh, you know, have a bachelor of engineering in computer science, the master's and PhD in computer science. I was basically a researcher uh, as, you know, my PhD thesis was on video streaming, if you believe it. That basically tells, gives my age away. Um, that was written in year, year two, uh, 2000. Three two thousand and four. So, <laughs> um, so you know, I, I'm from an academic family. Like you know, my father is a, a professor. Um, my brother is an academic. Um, I was an academic. So I lo- lo- love like cutting edge technology and like doing the research, which is you know, and, and that took me different places. I studied in Canada, uh, worked in Canada, then came back and you know worked in IIT Delhi in India. Uh, and then from there, we came to Australia to work at uh, National ICT Australia, which is was essentially like a research lab set up by the government of Australia, uh, sort of private-public partnership sort of format. And, um, you know, when I, when I was in Canada, I was doing some investing, but not really like it was buying basically mutual funds. And, and then I didn't do anything 
um, in the intervening period when we moved to India. So I sort of missed the GFC in many ways, which was very interesting. Uh, you know, for me, the GFC didn't really happen, which is not really a good thing to say because it's a good experience to have for the GFC to happen. Um, and then when I got back here into Australia, I thought, you know, we figured that now you're in that stage in life where you kind of need to put some money to work to start building, start to build a sort of nest egg for the future. Uh, you know, we had a, a daughter who was like at that time, about like nine months or six months old or so. Uh, she's now 12. Uh, and, and that sort of, you know, was an impetus. You know, we had, we had more stability in our family, um, which meant, you know, she should start looking to invest. And I got in, you know, so I looked into investing. And like most people here in Australia, I was looking into a lot of speculative stocks, uh, mining stocks and things like that. Uh, that never made me much money. <laughs> and and uh, the interesting story is, we have a, I have a very good friend uh, here um, called Rene. Uh, he used to work for Oracle. And he, um, you know, one day said, you know what, why are you investing in these mining stocks? When you have a technology background, you should really be looking at tech stocks. And I said, oh, that makes sense. I can invest in Netflix because I kind of understand what's going on there. And it was sort of like, you know, it was like, it was a light bulb moment in a way, which I felt, I felt really stupid about it because I really didn't, hadn't thought about that angle at all. <laughs> uh, largely because, you know, investing overseas from Australia seemed like a big deal. You know, you have to open an account, a brokerage account was hard to open. You, you know, you have to transfer money, foreign exchange is a big deal, but it's never a big deal if you want to try so he got me started and he said, you know, hey, you know, these are things that you should have. He mostly does ETF investing, but he's a, he's a good investor. And, you know, so we started sharing ideas. And that's how I got interested. Um, along the way, I found The Motley Fool, which uh, was, uh, you know, which told me, gave me a very different take on what investing was all about. Right. And a very common person take on how should you get around investing. And that got me really interested. So I, you know, as as doing my research and I was investing on the side and I was buying the companies that I, you know, I was using every day, like, you know, things like Apple and Netflix and, you know, and Amazon, um, you know, the stuff that I was working on, you know, like if I was working on uh, distributed uh, technologies on, on the internet, then it made sense to actually look at Amazon and maybe own some Amazon shares because they were into the cloud at that time, uh, you know, early in, in the cloud journey. So I was doing that. And there came a point where I thought, I've done research for so long. I've got, you know, got written all these papers, done, you know, graduated students, supervised, uh, you know, postdoctoral fellows, done research grants, got papers that I've got citations. I felt like, okay, I've done that. Let me try to do something else, you know. Um, so I wanted to get into investing as a full-time gig. And I, I applied to the Motley Pool for a job. And, uh, you know, first time I actually didn't get it. Uh, the second time, actually, somebody was, you know, was uh, good enough to say, okay, we'll give you a break. Um, and uh, that was Joe Omega, uh, who now runs Lakehouse Capital, which is a monthly full subsidiary, actually, uh, here in Australia. Um, he used to run Inside Value at that time for the full. Um, and he, you know, he was looking for someone with a sort of a software type of background. And that's how I got into the full. And and then sort of, you know, I, I you know, I was, you know, in, in, in it full full sort of full time you know learning learning what professionals sort of do and uh, you know applying what I knew um, from my background towards investing and so that journey continued for, for a long time so basically I became a full time you know um, sort of investor in 2015 that's not that long ago if you think about it, you know, maybe like you know six years seven years ago um, you know it made the, made the switch so again it's an interesting life uh, experience for me having the switch to working for a different completely different industry 
completely different type of job, uh, but very fulfilling because of the you know sort of the the impact you can have by working with a different set of people and try to help a whole different community, right? It's very different from working from academics to you know going and working in finance, for example. Right, and then how has your strategy evolved since you started? And I guess how do you you know, when you're evaluating what kind of recommendations and picks to make for seven investing, what are you looking for? What kind of analysis are you doing when looking at companies? That's a great, great question. So yes, you know, evolution for me uh, is has been gradual, right? So if I have to think about, like, uh, initially, like most investors, when I was investing very early on in the game, I was looking at all the all these things. Oh, I would look at PE ratios, and I want to buy this thing which is has a PE ratio of like fifteen, so that it is not too expensive and things like that. Um, and that often turns out to be the wrong strategy. I mean, because if if you're looking at the most basic piece of information then everybody has that piece of information. You know, you have no edge, right? And investing is all about trying to find an edge. So, um, so, so there was that piece, which then sort of said, okay, I shouldn't be looking at, you know, I basically, I shouldn't be a screener investor. Like, you know, where you sit on a, um, on a tool and you screen <laughs> and then you land up with ideas. Uh, at the same time, I sort of, you know, I, then sort of I made a switch to, okay, I want to look at well-run, big businesses, right? And the stuff that I understood. So, and that works really well, things like Apple and Netflix and Amazon, that works well. Um, but along the way, what I sort of also discovered, and and this was sort of a, a light bulb moment for me, is that one of the things I discovered is almost anything that I had seen that is important in academic uh, literature, and I'm just talking about, you know, the computing sort of literature, uh, and the stuff that I was familiar with, you'd find that there's about a five-year lag between when sort of the academics are talking about it and when sort of those technologies start finding their way into products and companies actually leveraging them for the win, right? So in the late 90s, early 2000s, streaming was a big deal in the academic literature. Like, you know, that is what, you know, we were solving all the critical problems that we thought were important problems um, from a technology point of view. And if you look at that period of time, you would realize if you go back and you see, you know, Netflix at that time was really a DVD player, right? It, it was really, not, no, I shouldn't say DVD player, it was sending basically DVDs to people, right? Uh, it was not really online yet in that form. And, and yeah, I also distinctly remember as an example, I'll decide this as an example, in like sort of 2005, I had a student come to my office, this was in Calgary, and, and she said to me, I had given her something to work on machine learning and, and traffic, network traffic and machine learning. She came to me and said, how about studying YouTube, right? So this is 2006, she's saying, let's study YouTube traffic. So we said, oh, I thought that is great, let's study YouTube. That's what actually one of the, you know, uh, the most impactful papers we landed up writing, uh, you know, generated like thousand plus citations. Um, one of the first people to actually publicly study YouTube traffic, uh, and, and got us a, a lot of it. But again, that sort of shows that, you know, when people are talking about that stuff, that is the early sort of web two evolution, right? The web two point world just starting to take shape. So that, to me that, you know, so I sort of connected these dots and said, okay, these things that people today are talking about these, you know, web two, like, you know, Facebook and Pinterest and things like that, right? This is really web two evolving over that time. We were talking about those things in 2005, 2006. So that became sort of my, 
uh, focal point that you know you can find a lot of ideas that are in that sort of stage of evolution from the literature right so i've been leveraging that and that has you know so that has helped me sort of move into finding sort of small to mid cap companies in the technology space um another great example i can give you is tesla right you know so you think about you know um, what tesla is doing forget about the cars and just think about energy they're really basically an energy company making batteries right but you know i remember we were uh you know in the literature looking at things like vehicle to vehicle communication and 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 all the thinking and people were t- talking about maybe even like 7 8 10 years ago about how you know you could have electric vehicles and they could have energy storage and that actually energy storage is storage that actually can move from one location to another and can actually act as a source of energy delivery not just as energy consumption right so right now you think of electric vehicles as just you know you feed and then you consume but they actually can become uh things that move around and then can actually become supply sources as well right not just a right. consumption source depending upon again usage so all of these sort of ideas exist and the best minds basically take these ideas and they commercialize it and if you can just find those companies that have sort of you know just started commercializing those ideas and generated revenue i think you can find a lot of ideas uh, early enough for big multibagger so that's sort of where i've changed my strategies as which i look for companies that are you know sub billion dollar revenue typically um you know but growing really fast that are making you know that are sort of at the edge you know what i call uh, not leading but bleeding edge of uh, of where the sort of the world is heading to right so that's how it has eventually changed and and it's a riskier approach to investing but can actually work really well if you if you're volatility tolerant and sort of take a long term horizon Yeah and for and for you especially uh since you have the expertise in a lot of these industries for say a generalist like us a lot of people that kind of dabble in those high tech things people talk about that with biotech as well you can get into trouble right if you don't understand how these businesses work That is true so here's the thing right i i really think that you know you don't have to actually be an expert to invest in these areas i think the only advantage is it's it's a little bit of temperament right so i think people get into trouble because people sort of leave stuff people exit stuff when on the first sign of trouble and this, the first sign of trouble could just be volatility right the stock is going down the stocks go down all the time <laughs> right yeah, yeah. so it, and and it scares you out because you just don't understand what's going on but that is a little bit of it's it's not necessarily about knowledge it's also about temperament right it's just i think people um you know wanting to be right more often than they need to be i think right but most people can you know figure these things out is what i think like it's not i'm not trying to say that i think i have some special uh special powers i think whatever i have i might have a little bit of edge in terms of understanding okay what is happening but i don't think it's it's something that deters other people from actually doing what i do um if they just you know want to study it and a lot of people you know you can I, actually i think fintwit for example is a great place right you see a lot of people who not necessarily are experts you know technical experts in certain areas but they're doing so well in that certain area that they've decided to focus on because they are looking for that piece of information uh that other people are not focusing on and then taking that sort of long term horizon and i think that's you know um a part of democracy in many ways democratization of investing i think that's fantastic definitely uh and when we were explaining or when we were sort of messaging before this something you said you were a fan of is capitalism without capital uh i thought that was pretty interesting so do you want to kind of uh 
explain what yeah. and then why you like it. Yeah. So I'm forgetting that. So this is a book that uh, there's a, so I forget the name of the authors, uh, but people can look it up. It's a book called Capitalism Without Capital, written by some folks out of uh, the UK, I believe. And they sort of touch upon this thing that the world has changed such that now to build a company, you don't need humongous amounts of capital. And the example would be that, you know, if you think about the great companies of the 20th century, like if you think of General Electric, it would need to build plants to build these huge turbines and things like that. You know, they like they build turbines for like, like electricity generation, generation, they build plane engines, right? These things require huge investment. Whereas if you take a new age company that's a software company, basically it needs people. So the, in many ways, the investment is now intangible, right? You need to find talented people and you build the software once. So there's a capital investment, human capital investment upfront. But once you've built that thing, you can duplicate it infinite number of times, right? So that's basically, you can keep growing without capital. And I think that has changed the game in investing big time because a lot of the things that we consume today are intangibles, right? You know, if you look at what we consume every day, um, you know, we consume music, we consume videos, we consume like, you know, NFTs, <laughs> we, can, we consume, you know, digital coins, um, everything that we're doing now, you know, people want to buy in-app stuff. This, it's all... Yeah digital, right? And those digital things have infinite scalability. So that's what I mean by that. And, and, and I think that book is interesting because what they're talking about in that book is they have a claim that the way uh, government bodies measure things like GDP no longer work because it doesn't really capture intangibles properly. Right, so we are used to you used to measuring things, you know. So they, their claim is that you know, at a high level, the reason GDP growth is like one percent or two percent. It's probably not that. It's probably actually much higher than that. There is, you know, there's productivity gains happening, and there's all sorts of things that we are producing which we just don't capture because our methods are not designed to capture that. Um, and that's, I think, what we see in a lot of these new age companies, right? You know, they're all about intellectual property and scaling. Yeah, it's fascinating. I looked it up. It's by Jonathan Haskell, right? Is that the correct Exactly. Part? Just want to, in case yes. anyone wants to find yes. it. Yes. All right. Um, before we move on, we want to talk, we're going to talk about cloud computing. Yeah, we've got a lot of take. questions on cloud. we got an expert here, so we got we to gotta... Uh But before we move on, we're going to hit a quick ad break, and then uh, we'll be back on the second half. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Welcome back in. Uh, next, we're talking cloud. We have a lot of questions. So. Yeah, we had to cut them back even just for time. <laughs> and it's it's something I feel like is thrown, al- thrown around a lot, uh, but not everyone has quite the grasp on it. So one of the questions I kind of wanted to ask you is where you think we're sort of at in cloud adoption. I guess maybe if you could give us an inning. So if it's nine innings long, uh, where do you think we're at? Well, I love this question. This is this is one of my favorite questions, actually. So I will, uh, you know, so I'll, I'll answer it indirectly. If you talk to people, people will say things like about fifteen to twenty percent of workloads 
um, are in the cloud now. And when by workloads, workloads are a very broad term, right? So workload could mean things that you process, you know, used to process in your uh, in, in your data center or in your infrastructure that you had locally that you moved to the cloud, or it could mean things like you know just your data that's sitting in the cloud. And things like that. So workload could mean a whole bunch of different things. Let's call it just processing and storage. People would say that fifteen to twenty percent of that is in the cloud. But I think that sort of misses the boat. And one way to think about this is Gartner has some data which would say that about 270 billion is the sort of was the spend on um, public cloud in in 2020. Okay, that's expected to grow by about 20 percent odd in 2021. Right, so you got 300 billion plus. Now contrast that with how much. IT spending is there, right? IT spending is on the tune of like $4 trillion, right? And, and I think that sort of gives us a metric, right? So a lot of that IT spend should actually go to the cloud. Now, not everything, right? People are still going to buy computers and they're going to have, you know, whatever computer they want. They're going to have their, um, you know, handhelds and things like that. It's going to be physical stuff that people buy, but a lot of that should go to the cloud. So that, that gives us a sense that's very, very early stage. And the, the you know, a quote, an expert, instead of you quoting me, I'll quote a bigger expert uh, to give myself some validity. So Andy, uh, Jesse just became CEO of uh, Amazon or later to become CEO of Amazon. I don't exactly follow <laughs> what's going on there, but it's all good. Um, he he was the CEO of Amazon uh, Web Services, right? And he, when he's welcome uh, in his internal letter to, which of course got leaked um, to employees about AWS people saying that they're bringing back Adam I believe Silipsky, who was the Tabula uh, CEO and president, um, and Tabula got acquired by Salesforce. So he's basically, and he used to be in Amazon, AWS. So he's coming, basically coming back to his home and, and just welcoming him. And you know, one of the things that Andy Jassy basically indicated is that according to Andy Jassy, 5% of the total spend that, you, or 5% of stuff that should be in the cloud are actually on the cloud. Right. So if you think about it, if you put all of those things together, actually, we're very much in the very, very early innings, first phase. First innings, one out of nine uh, is where I stand. And you just see that. If you look at the big cloud spending and the growth, the growth at scale, right? Um, if you think about Amazon, I think Amazon is about in the 50 billion, 54, AWS is in a $54 billion run rate. If you just annualize what they were doing this quarter, and you think about the growth, 30%. How you can't grow at that rate from that scale unless the opportunity is huge, right? So I mean, there's a lot of things that say that this is still very or very very early days. Yeah, there's that friction too that it's not going to be like some viral thing, like a, say like Facebook or something was back in the day, where there's such a cost to transition, where it's not like every company is going to be able to do that over overnight. Am I getting that correct or no? Absolutely. That's another. That's that's a brilliant, brilliant observation. So yes, there's going to be a huge amount of friction, right? So if if I'm a bank and I've got my own data centers and my own infrastructure, I'm not going to tear it apart now. I might even be very, very you know, skeptical. Of, there's a like organizational um, organ, organizational reluctance is a big deal, right? I mean, those people who are managing the IT infrastructure local, they don't want to lose their jobs, right? So they, you know, they they would probably be more happier if we sort of had a hybrid arrangement where you can run cloud software locally. But in your own data center, <laughs> your own infrastructure, and, and then that sort of talks to the cloud, that's the way it's going to happen. And that's the way it's happening. And yeah, there's going to be huge, there's, there's going to be just, you know, steady progress. You know, I think what's going to happen is people are not going to throw new stuff, buy new stuff locally. 
for, for their infrastructure as things require upgrades, people are going to move to a cloud. And this is going to just take time. And, and, and there's going to be natural growth in the industry as well, right? So I think, yeah. Interesting. Is there any uh, kind of sub, I mean, cloud computing is obviously a huge category. So is there any sort of subcategory that excites you more than others? Yeah, okay. Uh, so the way I think about this is, I like, you know, from my from my days as a computer scientist, I like to think of things as, as a stack, protocol stack, or in abstractions, right? So the way to think, I think about sort of big cloud providers, I think of them as the equivalent of the internet, right? So the cloud providers, the infrastructure as a service providers, they provide the building blocks for doing things. Exactly as the internet provides the building blocks for, the internet provided the building blocks for things like email, then it allowed the building block for things like, you know, uh, the web. It allowed for things like, you know, peer-to-peer -peer file transfers. BitTorrent, for example, was big one, you know, back in the day. Um, now, then it allowed for, you know, then it allowed for mobile to be developed and it allowed things like, you know, Facebook to, you know, evolve, right? You keep layering on the top. So I think, if you think about cloud, I think the, the big infrastructure providers, they are like the internet equivalent. And I think what you're gonna get is on top of that. So what, what I really try to focus on is who's innovating sort of on the platform level, right? What applications are you developing that people really need? And that is gonna get tied into um, people's workflow. So my, my thing is, as a service is a big deal and it's not necessarily software as a service, right? It could be network as a service, it could be database as a service, anything basically as a service that runs on top and makes people's job easier, better, allows them to do different applications, you know, new novel applications. That's, I think, where the magic, the big magic will happen. Of course, the infrastructure players are gonna grow because of that, because you're gonna build on top of that. Right. So infrastructure players have a natural tailwind. That's one way of playing it. But I think it's just, um, you know, like if you think about the flow of dollars, right, the, the, the Internet did not make any money. Right. So the people who invented the Internet, you know, the, the climb rocks of this world, they did not actually make any money. People who built stuff on top of the Internet, they built. Now, that that happened for various reasons. You know, that could be another separate topic altogether. But I think the cloud providers will make money. But I think the more more economic benefits are going to uh, accrue to people building on top. So that's at least what I think. Again, I could be wrong. No, that's, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. And looking at the big three cloud providers, we see companies like Google Cloud, they're touting kind of their machine learning and AI competitive advantage, you know, obviously because they're associated with Google and they have that expertise and how they can acquire customers. Do the big three cloud providers have different niches they target or are they all just going after similar customers? Uh, again, that's another superb question. So at a high level, I think the answer is that they're basically very similar. So, so the, the infrastructure providers are basically infrastructure providers. Of course, they do other stuff. You know, they have platforms also that they run uh, on top of it, and you can subscribe to those platforms. Uh, but they are very similar. I think there's a little bit of history here. So AWS had like the longest, you know, AWS has the largest share, right? And they had the largest share because they started first and they sort of had, you know, one of the things that um, Jeff Bezos will say is that it's rare to have two years of lead time in an area. Uh, AWS had like five years or six years. That's a huge lead time in a competitive, you know, in a free market, you're not supposed to have five, six years of lead time, like where you're, potential competitors didn't even wake up. So they built 
stuff up. But you know, the, the other big guys, like you know, take Google, for example, right? They have an engineering talent. They already had data centers across the world. Uh, you can transform those into GCP, which is what they've done. Um, if you think in terms of the services they offer, they're very similar. They have specialities here and there. So if you are, as you said, you know, wanting to run machine learning algorithms, and you want to use the TensorFlow libraries, and now that's you know that's like a Google specialty. Then you, you know, it's not that you can't run it anywhere else, but you know people will first if if you're thinking TensorFlow, you're going to think GCP, right? So I think that plays a role, uh, but I think there are other things that are more important, and that would be sort of a go-to-market strategy, right? So if you have if you think about the if talent is not a limitation for you because you're a big 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 player and you can spend and build the infrastructure, you can price it competitively, then the go-to-market strategy really matters, right? So um, Amazon, I think in the beginning was very hesitant on hybrid cloud strategy, right? Well, so if, if Google went and said, oh, okay, you know, GCP said, well, okay, the Google cloud, uh, cloud platform said, well, we are happy to support not just uh, hybrid, so we'll allow you to run, enable you to run the entire GCP stack locally, not just that, we'll also allow you to be multi-cloud, right? That sort of helped them build their way. Now, if you are an enterprise software provider, then you have like in a way of sort of, you know, winning enterprise clients. So it's just really about go-to-market strategy. AWS had a big, big lead because of developers. Developers just loved it, right? And that was how it got uptake. Um, so I think it's right now, I feel like it, I don't think that they have any particular edge each one, but it's just the go-to-market strategy. The market is big and you can't win everything. And then you can't do everything, right? I think I'll, I'll use um, an Elon Musk line. I think the main limitation for progress uh, or in, is, you know, is basically lack of quality engineers. Like, I mean, if you want to develop everything that you want to do, uh, you need quality engineers, right? And, and the way I explain this is there is nothing, like people say, oh, that company is a leader in AI. I would say that Apple could reproduce everything that Google does tomorrow if it wanted to. You only, it's, it's money is not a problem. The main limitation is acquiring the talent to actually do it and then basically putting it together, right? So I think that's the, I think limitation in terms of talent and, um, you know, sort of your go-to-market strategy with results and what is important is the, is the key differentiators. But the, the, the final point I'll make is there's the go-to-market strategy also aligns with things like, if I'm a retailer, do I want to put my, um, you know, my infrastructure on Amazon because Amazon might compete with me, right? And if I'm a, if I'm a health company, do I want to put my stuff on, G, uh, on GCP? Because, you know, what about data privacy? So I think each company has a different niche that they can, you know, sort of, you know, use to leverage for sales. I think that's really what's happening there. Is there, I mean, how, like once someone's on a certain cloud platform, do they switch off or is churn like really low? Is there, is there kind of too, you get too intertwined with a certain cloud platform? So I think once you're in a platform, you have spent the resources to put things on. I think churn is low. Okay. Right. I think what's increasingly happening though is multi-cloud. People basically would say, "Well, why, you know, why should I have everything on you know different parts of the organization? If a big organization is, I'm going to use something from here, something from there, yeah, because that allows me more flexibility. It just you know, uh, you I can also pitch a uh, pit one uh, you know vendor against the other vendor and try to get a better deal. If I'm you know, so I think that that's a multi-cloud is really what's happening. But it's these things, like if you build on it, like, I mean, it's it's a lot of investment. So you've built, put the investment in, I think you're not going to, 
uh, it's very, it's, it's pretty sticky that way. I think it's pretty sticky. And as long as these people keep innovating, I think it's just hard. It's very difficult to steal um, users by doing the same thing. You have to offer, you know, you're different. You have to have a go-to-market strategy. You have to offer something that's different that they can't do, um, you know, on one platform, uh, some advantages and so on. And that's where innovators, I think, come into play, right? If you innovate, right? And again, the question would be that, well, why can't they do it? And I think, again, ultimately, everybody has a focus and everybody has limitations in terms of how many engineers they can uh, hire and how many, you know, quality people can you have and, and, and so on and so forth, right? So, um, so that's where the beauty, the beauty of big market is that a lot of people can win because it's a big market with you know a lot of innovation potential. Right, right. And you answered this a bit, but how would the big three cloud providers get disrupted? Um, is it just going to be small attacks, or is that moat just insanely strong? Well, I think the moats are insanely. These are like big companies, right? I mean, if you take like look at the balance sheet of say Google, right? One of the biggest things I think that is fundamentally, I think, sort of different from uh, like maybe 20 years ago is none of these companies have a huge amount of debt. They don't need a huge amount of debt. If they have debt, it's basically they've got debt because they wanted to, you know, juice their buybacks or something like that. Right. Right. And they had some issues with, you know, accessing capital. But these companies don't need a huge amount of capital. So it's, and they don't have debt, which usually gets people into trouble. So I think they can, continually innovate. And I think it's, it's, so I think it's very difficult to disrupt them in their game. Like, so if you want to disrupt these people in, as an infrastructure as a service provider, I think it's very difficult. Some people can, those people who have a large footprint. So if, if, if somebody like say Facebook decided that they wanted to build an infrastructure as a service play, if they spent a lot of money and effort, they could. But not everyone, maybe Apple can, but not everyone can, not everyone has the potential and ability. So you have to, if you want to, I think it's, I think the key is not trying to disrupt these people, but one of the things about innovation is that the, the best way to win is to innovate somewhere else. Like you're not going to innovate and out innovate Apple in, in smartphones or wearables or, you know, device technology or anything like that. You can out innovate Apple only by building something completely different that is not necessary. Those are very, that's not, I shouldn't say necessary, but that is, that is something that people haven't yet imagined that the need that would supplant what people use today, right? That's the type of innovation that, that, that can happen that threatens them. But again, these companies are so big with so many lines of revenue that they can miss a thing, a big thing, uh, and they can still be okay, <laughs> uh, right? So these, you know, a lot of these big companies, are, like, you know, uh, Apple, for example, these are these are in such a fantastic sport that people just underestimate what they can do, and they always think that it's big and therefore it's you know ripe for failure. But these are not the same big companies as yesteryear's big companies. So, huh? That's yeah. I mean, you look at all the big cloud providers, and they're they're all big tech. So it's like. It just it automatically makes me think like you can't get in this industry unless you have tons of capital to throw at it. Unless I guess uh, you do it from a different angle. Would that be right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. So you have to innovate. You have to find an innovation angle to out-innovate these people. And these people are always trying to innovate and get into other things just because their revenue base is so big, uh, right? For them to actually get growth, they need to, you know, like Apple wants to make maybe cars because <laughs> you can only sell so many smartphones, right? That's, I think, the, 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 uh, the, the dynamic at play here. So 
it's a very it's a very interesting time to watch these companies because it's very very different dynamic i think to like you know what exxon mobil was or you know general electric was or one of those companies of of the previous generation that were the big companies i think the dynamic has changed right so yeah they're in definitely a better competitive positioning um than where exxon mobil or ge was for sure uh, uh ryan you have, you have one something yeah i guess this question's a little unrelated but uh, we kind of you sent this over before but talking about tech valuations broadly um i guess where do you see them uh i mean we just talked about how we think there's a huge runway for growth so i guess uh it has the money come first or is is it kind of too much of a premium valuation or just what do you see yeah no, i mean the valuations are premium um you know if you're paying 30 times sales for stuff or 40 times sales for stuff they are expensive that's it's just no doubt about that I think the way I think about this is um, a couple of different things. If the runway is 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 big and huge, uh, I think you can still win from current valuations. I think as long as the company delivers, I think you're going to be fine. If the company doesn't deliver, you're going to lose. Uh, but that's always the case with investing. I think the other thing that is very important. I think our we have reference bias all the time, right? You know, the way our brains work is that we have reference bias all the time. So we think about valuations, we look at, oh, the you know, current S&P PE is blah, 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 whatever, let's say 20, right? Um, and that is much higher than it has been historically, but interest rates have also never historically been 0%. When <laughs> oh, I'm talking about the Fed interest rate, right? I mean, worldwide, everyone has interest rate basically at zero and promising it's gonna stay at that level for a long time, right? There is no inflation like has been in the past, and that possibly is because we are maybe importing deflation, right? Because globalization is a relatively new phenomenon in that sense, right? I mean, you're basically buying the cheap stuff from everywhere. So how, how are you going to get, you know, inflation? The inflation basically means, you know, product cost has to go up, right? Stuff has to be more expensive. But if you're buying the cheap stuff, you know, I'm going to buy the shirt from India and the TV from China, uh, <laughs> you know, and then the TV from China is more expensive. I'm going to buy it from, you know, Vietnam, Uh it is really, really difficult to see how that's. So I think those are the big differences. I mean, you know, 5%, I think, was like an average uh, Fed interest rate. Like, if you look at like, I don't know, 70s onwards, right, until like maybe the 2008. So that's a big difference. I think we have to factor that in. Um, the Yeah, so I mean, would I be happy with lower valuations? Yes. But if if I have to think about returns, I try to think about what my alternative asset classes are. And I don't have very many, you know, I can't buy government bonds because they're going to give me absolutely negative returns. Um, I can buy junk bonds and I can risk it, or I can buy assets that produce something and, and you know, hope to be better than that, right? And and I think every valuation is is stretched in that sense, right? Whether you're buying like a um, well-established company or a new company, they're all high valuations relative to what they've been in the past. But I think there's a reason for it. So I don't worry too much about it. Is is the way, and you know, and, and I think it works for me because I'm still putting money into work, right? So you know, when the valuations are high, I buy some. When the valuations are low, I buy some. When there was pullback, like today, I tweeted out. I bought I bought a bunch of stocks, and you know, it's zero brokerage. You can buy a little bit of a lot of the things that you like, and great. <laughs> yeah, it's really easy to dollar cost average currently, uh, or at least compared to the past. But we'll hit the wrap up questions. These are the ones we ask every interviewee. Uh, first one, what's one financial saying that you disagree with? 
Maybe one of the things, I don't know who this is attributed to, but you know, the, this is used quite often. Nobody ever lost money taking a profit. Uh, and I think this is probably the worst piece of advice that you can give because you know, if you take profit every time, like you know, Netflix, imagine Netflix over the last 20 years, you took profit every time it went up a little bit, you know, let's say doubled. That's how you miss the multi-baggers, right? I mean, so, you know, you absolutely, and then the other thing, the related fact is that, you know, there's, there's a skew in the return distribution, right? So there's a Pareto uh, distribution for returns, 20%, maybe 15, 20% of the, of the stocks generate maybe 75, 80% of the total returns. So if you keep selling your winners all the time, you basically are ensuring that your returns on average are going to be worse because the, the big ones you've, you've sold and you kept, probably you kept your losers around. Um, so absolutely, you know, stuff that's not working out and you know, it's okay to pull the weeds, but I think you should water the flowers, not, not sort of, you know, clip them every time that, you know, the, the rose starts budding outside. <laughs> it's also, I mean, and it gets hard. Like if you, you know, if you really like a company and you trade it when you make money, I think it's really hard pill to swallow to get back in at a higher yeah. price because yep, you're yeah. going to anchor to it. Yeah. Um, all right, yeah. last question then. Uh, what's what's a piece of advice you have for anyone that's considering a career in investing? A career in investing, I mean, it's a great career. So um, what would I say? I would say first, you know, focus on learning the, the basics, right? I mean, it's really useful to learn the basics, you know, read um read the books, read Warren Buffett, even though I don't invest on Warren Buffett, I disagree with a lot of things that he would say uh, right now. Uh, but I think, you know, there's a lot of knowledge that you can get from Buffett, Munger, and other people who sort of speak, who basically have uh, demystified the basic structure and operations of investing. I think that's very, very important. The other thing I would say is that be, always be learning. Now, that's true for actually anything, right? As, as human beings, we should always be learning and trying to learn new things. And the, other, the final thing is in investing, I think you have to be humble, to be humble, humble to accept that you're going to be wrong and you're going to get things wrong and you're going to look like a fool. That, that's important. And the final thing I would say is be flexible and be willing to adapt, right? I mean, what worked in the 20th century is not going to work in the 21st. What works in the 21st is not going to work in the 22nd. And I think it, even you know, in shorter time periods, maybe like 20-year time slots, 10-year time slots, things change. So learning and being flexible and adapting is really, really key. Right. So those are some of, some of the things I'd say. Um, no, no profound advice there. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Um, well, I think that's all the questions we have. I'm all good. Yeah. Uh, wh oh, where can anyone find you? If yeah. They love the show? Thing, yeah. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So so you know, I'm on Seven Investing. All my picks um, um, are are on Seven Investing now. So at Seven Investing is a great place to follow us. Uh, you can follow me at on Twitter at Seven Amahanti. Um, and that's, you know, I, uh, we, I, I'm try to be on Twitter and I try to answer, even if people send me, you know, DMs, I will answer them. And if somebody asks me something, I will answer them. Um, so yeah, but Twitter is a great place. I think Twitter is, is underrated from what it can deliver. I know you guys are on Twitter, right? I mean, it's again, Twitter is really underrated and, you know, everybody who's interested in investing should really be on Twitter. There's a lot of cool stuff happening on Twitter. Oh, for sure, and, for sure. Uh, and if you want to see his picks, feel free to use that code CCM. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to plug that. Yeah, yeah. CCM for a discount. But uh, yeah, thank you for spending the time. Uh, appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me.
Welcome back in. Uh, thanks again to Honorbon for coming on. Really appreciated it. Uh, next, we have our show notes. I got some good stuff. Nothing too exciting. Kind of funny yeah, stuff. There wasn't big news this week outside of the dumb. Uh, well, I wouldn't call it dumb, especially. There was a lot of crypto news, I guess, in that wild world that's going on right now. But in real, like uh, the investing world, really kind of a boring week. But we'll try to hit some stuff. There's some earnings, but eh. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, my big story this week, huge. Berkshire is dead. Uh, This week, major indexes or major exchanges indicated that Berkshire Hathaway's Berkshire A shares stock dropped more than 99%. Uh, I've known this thing was a fraud since the Solomon crisis or the Solomon debacle. So how'd you, uh, what did you think when you saw this? Yeah. I mean, they were anticipating it, right? Yeah, so the uh, Nasdaq or what? Not the Nasdaq. One of whatever the exchange was can count up that high. Kind of impressive. I, I bet they were smiling at, at headquarters. Yeah, I think it is ironic that tech couldn't handle how valuable Berkshire was. But yeah. uh, apparently, the exchange computers have a limit to the maximum number of digits they can handle. This was written about in the Wall Street Journal a few days before. Um, for some reason, because of the way they communicate prices, uh, the Nasdaq has a maximum price of $429,496.73. That's the most it can handle. Uh, and Berkshire's A shares surpassed that, I think, last Thursday. Um, oh, and when it happened, a bunch of the exchanges showed Berkshire's stock dropping 99%. Yeah, it which like made divided for, by 100 or something for some reason, right? Yeah, made for something. great meme content. Yes. Uh, people were saying, this is why you don't invest in risky assets like Berkshire. Uh, That's anyway, why you only invest in Dogecoin, yeah. Apparently, I think the Wall Street Journal coined it the stock market's version of the Y2K bug. Pretty funny. Uh, I'm not really sure how this ended up getting resolved, but it looks fine now. Question, this is pretty much unrelated, but I saw it this week on Twitter. thought it was kind of interesting. Do you think if Berkshire was what it is today, back in 1956, so when Buffett started his partnerships... Uh, Buffett would have owned them. Like if Buffett no, early no, on no, was no, pitched no, Berkshire. Nope. No way. Yeah, I agree. Hundred percent. No. I mean, any he'd of the co- SPAC arbitrage. Yeah, yeah, he'd be in. Yeah, yeah. No way he would be in Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, there's nothing wrong. Uh, nothing wrong with it. Investing in it, but it's just different styles. He was a lot more aggressive. If you read the history, um, he was in the so nitty yeah, gritty. Yeah, yeah, he he was a lot more aggressive, taking huge positions and things that were yeah arbitrage stuff like that, or or even just really, uh, I guess he was he was an all over all all different types of styles. And again, it's nothing. So I think Berkshire Hathaway is not a good investment here. Uh, I have no view either way. It's just not the style he would have had when he was younger. Yeah, great. Um, when when do we get to a million dollars a share? A few years time, maybe five years, ten years. We're I think that's a that's when he should retire. I think he will step down. Bold prediction. He steps down after <laughs> it hits a milli. Uh, God, that would be... That'd be what a way... I mean, if it hits a million dollars, that's... Great way to go out. Yeah, he's already the best of all time, but if he had a million, that would be one for, like, the history books. You know what I mean? Like, when they write that down, it, it brings more authority and, I guess, maybe some glamour, although he doesn't really care about that. But It'll probably reach uh, a million this year. Yeah. Definitely. He's still trailing... I, I actually wonder what's been. You've got better. your bet against uh, what was it, Big Tech versus Berkshire? I think yeah, Berkshire's I winning. Yeah, I, I I didn't bet on it. I just had a poll. I think eighty percent of people chose FanMag uh, at the start of this year to beat Berkshire over the next three years. So far, they're likely losing, but I think it's gonna be a good race. They'll probably. I mean, both groups will probably do well. 
All right, what's your story? Your okay, well, story. this one is what we've been talking about for the last few months. Hindenburg Research takes down another SPAC. The research team that exposed Nikola is back at it again, exposing PureCycle Technologies. So PureCycle is a pre-revenue company, as you might expect. Like a SoulCycle competitor? No, 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 no. Their pure cycle is like pure recycle. Um, oh. Not a bad name, but they're talking about how they will revolutionize the plastics recycling industry. Uh, the pure cycle team, and I'm just reading off the notes here. I didn't read the whole report by Hindenburg. Sorry, I'm not going to read that 30, 40 pages if it's not something <laughs> something I own. But uh, the pure cycle team has taken six companies public, resulting in two bankruptcies, three delistings, and an acquisition after a 95% drawdown. So history, uh, his track record's pretty bad. Um, one of the SPAC sponsors is Roth Capital which is the firm who infamously brought all the China frauds public, if you remember, in the China Hustle, the one where they had the parties with Snoop Dogg and all that stuff. I think once I you get the, if you get the musical artists at those, remember those big events? If you remember the China Hustle, there was that California firm with all the... That's usually, that's usually a bad sign. If you get the musical artists at an investment firm, uh, I think as an LP, that might be an indicator. It's kind of like that divorce thing from Paul Tudor Jones. I think that came up earlier this week. What, the fund managers don't if, do well? Yeah, if a, if a fund manager gets divorced, they're not going to be in a good state of mind. Um, and it's kind of an indicator that you might want to take the money out from that from that point on. But there's also, um, yeah, if, if a musical artist or a celebrity comes on board, that might be a sign that their eye isn't necessarily on the ball. And that was documented in the China Hustle. Their eye was kind of... Well, it was on the ball, but a bit, you know, just fraudulently. Um, and then Craig Hallam, the other SPAC sponsor, who was the, you know, banker investor that took him public, gave the stock a buy rating on the day it listed, which is a bit of a conflict of interest, but that's not technically illegal. It's just a little immoral, in my opinion. And now Pure Cycle is down 56%. Uh, since it went public, and the market cap is still $2.9 billion. So it looks like we can go down 50%, kind of like Nikola, we can go down 50% just kind of in perpetuity here. <laughs> just, you know, we're going to get cut in half, we're going to get cut in half again, and we'll probably get cut in half again here. That's, it's a testament to the froth. Yeah, yeah when, when does this stuff, I'll ask again, when does this stuff become fraudulent? It's always fraudulent. The SEC just doesn't do anything about yeah, it. Josh Wolf. Always the autopsy, never the diagnosis. Yeah, Chano seems exactly right when he says the golden age of fraud. I mean, it feels like it can't get more ridiculous than this stuff. Um, I guess we've seen some of the the really bad cryptocurrencies that are made up as a joke now, but I guess I mean, you never know. It seems like there's 10 times as many schemes out there exactly like Pure Cycle Technologies that just haven't gotten exposed yet with the prevalence of what probably the last, I don't know, year or so, how many SPACs have gone public, like five, 600, something like that? It is interesting. You know, you think about if this happened in 02, like, I guess I yeah. wasn't around then, but... Say just, say 2014. You know, when that stuff kind of happened then, it was, I don't know, it felt like people knew, like, this was like, like, it wouldn't even get, I think Jake Taylor maybe talked about it, this... Maybe the valuations aren't as crazy, but the stupidity is unparalleled yeah. Yeah. in yeah. this market. Or, like, I would say what? maybe ignorance without, like, 
you yeah. know, stuff like that, or it's where the capital the is allocated. Dogecoin, Titscoin, these things don't. There's no. I don't know. It just feels dumber. Yeah. For it? anyone that doesn't know about the, the the coin stuff, Ryan is not joking when he said that that second coin there that is a real one. He's not. He's not making that up. Yeah. I mean, it's just people are. I don't. Know, it just feels like a. Maybe it isn't as irrational, uh, in terms of like standard valuations, but it just feels dumber. It feels yeah. It's crazier. Well, I guess we can't compare it personally, but and the frauds that are it, getting bit up. Yeah, that's kind of the stuff. I mean, to tie it well, back to what we're talking about, it—that's where it makes me question uh, the overall market. Yeah, and then uh, Josh Wolf had a conversation with Carson Block, the founder of Muddy Waters. I read a profile on Carson Block, and it was funny um, that uh, they were talking about how he has kind of a you know he's kind of on a man on a mission, right? And they had passed back like a, a, a like a bench. Like a like a bench thing. He's like, yeah, you know, I can bench three fifteen. <laughs> it, it didn't come up in the conversation. I thought that was really funny. Carson, I love you for listening, but uh, that 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 was quite funny. But they were talking in their conversation about how there's known frauds out there, like Nikola GSX, that one that was manipulated by uh, Bill Huang and Archegos. That it seems like the four is like five six billion dollar market cap. Like that's the zero. Like yeah. who is who is still holding these things, and why are they st- why aren't they selling? You know what I mean. Yeah, I find it a, – a drawing could be worth more than Nelnet or Boston Omaha. I don't know what Boston Omaha's market cap is now. But like there's companies with real assets and a lot of operating income. But the idea – Hundreds of, of other ones. Those are just two random – yeah, random examples. The idea of a rendering of a truck. You know, It just feels like – it, and it's post-exposure of the fraud. Yeah, that's the whole thing. That yeah, blows my mind. Yeah, it's post-exposure, which is insane. Yeah, the and what's crazier is that these things that are known frauds, I'm very confident in saying that they're going to do poorly in aggregate. Um, but if, and they operate in difficult if, markets. Yeah, if FanMag, you know, yeah, they operate in a difficult market. They don't have any. Uh, if FanMag continues its run and kind of, you know, the S&P 500 keeps doing well, the people are that invest in these things are going to be quite like it's fine if everything goes down everyone's like oh well whatever everything was overvalued but if the actual stock market continues to whatever compound at 10 percent which who, who knows uh and these stocks go down 90 percent these frauds i mean uh, people are going to get very very angry yeah who knows though all right um my next story it's not really a story but it's kind of an anecdotal evidence segment um title is Microsoft Office Dying. Uh, some professor, he might have been like a teacher's assistant, whatever. He's well, from he's Harvard. From, he's from Harvard, so. Yeah, he's studying uh, his PhD or I don't I'm not really sure. But he tweeted this week that none of his students, he's like grading papers all the time, uh, really use Word anymore. Uh, he said when they're asked to turn in assignments as .doc files, they just end up converting them over from Google Docs or Pages. I can attest to this. Um there's just a little bit of friction with using Word. I don't know how to pinpoint it, but... Well, it costs money. Well, yeah, in college it doesn't really, but... I mean, it's tight in. You get office. You get the office suite included, right? Uh, kind of, yeah. Some, most I mean, of the time. If, you're with, if you get the email, yeah, yeah. That's the thing I find interesting is that the office suite is usually included in college packages, and they're still using G Suite. Um, I almost always use G Suite for pretty much anything now. And I think Google has yeah. easier inroads to the end user. 
Um, yeah, I don't know why. It just it seems like Google Docs. Yeah, I mean, everyone I knew at, my college, at, the, at the engineering college, we'd all use Google Drive for everything. Everyone, 100% of people did it. Yeah, I don't know why. And we all had office, access to Office 365. I find it... It's weird. The product's not better or anything. It's just... It just ended up happening. I don't know why. So when, that's why when... Uh, I think it was last week you asked uh, which big tech company is still going to be the most relevant in 30 years. That's why I hesitate to say Microsoft. Now, I know there's obviously other oh, yeah, elements to the business. Yeah. But, I mean, does this, does this matter for Microsoft? Like, no. I don't spend... On a daily basis, I don't spend that much time using Microsoft. I can't think. I don't. I don't think I do. Maybe I do, and I don't know it. But nah, probably not. It probably doesn't matter because most of the time they're just attaching Office three sixty five to big enterprises or universities or whatever, anyways. So and I know if you're working at a big company, anything we're crazy, but no, individuals our age don't just don't use it. Yeah, individuals use Google Drive, but again. I mean, if they lose that market, they still get the enterprise, and it's, what, a tiny part of their business. So I wouldn't be too concerned yeah. about Microsoft. But, yeah, it's definitely a... They also said Google, they said they use Google uh, Docs or they use Pages, which I, I think I don't know is a Dropbox thing. Oh, Pages? No? Brady's shaking his head. Apple. Oh, Apple. He's saying it's Apple. Oh. Apple. Uh, I think they have a Pages, too. Yeah, Dropbox. you're the Apple user. I don't know. Well, I don't use Pages, but... The, yeah, the this angle evidence people are probably been like, oh, it's overrated. It's definitely true. Um, Big time. It's, it's 100% true. What what that means, I really have no idea. All right. What, uh, what do you have? Okay, yeah. So, again, not much relevant news this week. So I thought I found this interesting blog post from Focus Compounding, which is a blog and a podcast that if you like our show, you'll probably like them as well. Um, and it was talking about the difference between durability versus moats. So a lot of the times when I think people are discussing it, um, whether you know, on purpose or inadvertently, they seem to think these are the same thing. But the way they defined it, and I think it's true, is that moat equals competitive positioning versus rivals, so other companies in your industry. And durability is long-lasting demand from your industry or these companies' products. So just to give some examples, um, maybe you can think of any too. I don't know if you have any off the top of your head. It's, it's not too easy of a task, but... Comcast or Charter or cable companies or broadband or whatever have strong moats, right? You can mm-hmm. really easily define the moats there, but people question, and I'm not sure if they're right or wrong, the durability of the broadband industry over the next decade with threats from, I guess the biggest threat people talk about is 5G. It's kind of an unknown threat. So there, you know, there's a strong moat within there, but there's a question of the durability of the product. And then to flip it around, you can look at like grocery or basically any food company in general there's a highly durable industry everyone's going to need food forever and ever and ever as long as there's humans uh but a lot of the times one would likely worry about competitive positioning within the grocery or food industry it's not sure where some you know some ones you could argue could have a moat but you're not really sure whether any companies have really strong competitive advantages and it made me think that ideally you want companies that are ones that have both. So some potential examples I thought of off the top of my head would be cloud infrastructure. So AWS, Azure, Google Cloud Project. Mm. Um, Certain entertainment companies, Disney, Nintendo, a few others where there's, you know, durability. Everyone's going to want to be entertained forever and then competitive positioning with the brands um, and the IP and then certain engineering and design software tools. So there's Ansys, Dassault, Autodesk. There's a lot of others where... The need for these products are going to continue, 
and they have strong competitive advantages through extremely high switching costs. Um, so it's a lot. Uh, what, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think they define that stuff right. Uh, ideally, you definitely want both. Cause I don't know how much durability it does for you if it's just uh, increasingly fragmented uh, as more and more demand comes. So it's like, yeah, uh, you want to find a company with both. I would say Match Group maybe fits into that, where you got yeah. both. Um, yes. I would say the demand for that is yeah. going to continue. Yeah, social networks in general as well could be one, although sometimes you worry about the moat. I have a tough time evaluating social networks. It's kind of not something, it's not a game we typically like to play, investing in them, at least. Mm. So I don't know about them, but yeah, Match Group, I guess you could argue. I was trying to think of other ones. I don't know, do you have any other examples off the top of your head? Not off the top of my head. They used McCormick as a good one. Which makes sense. That is a good one. Brand plus durability. Maybe, maybe Starbucks. I don't know. I don't know about the durability stuff. I know coffee drinkers are shrinking, yeah, right? Dur- uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought guess, I heard that somewhere. Yeah, you can make the the tobacco argument a bit where it's a declining industry, maybe. But I, I think it's a lot more dur- highly moody with less durability potentially. Yeah. Well, That's a good um, one too. all right. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting topic. Um. Another thing that I saw this week on Twitter was it's kind of about marketplace competition. It was Dan McMurtry, I think it's at, it's like Super Mugato. Um, he kind of published his thoughts about this, and I thought it was kind of just worth talking about. He says that uh, Tyro Partners or his uh, fund doesn't really think of markets as competitive or adversarial in the traditional sense. So, And I think we're seeing this all the time now. There's all these bull versus bear narratives like they're wrong, so that means the bulls are right, or the, the bulls yeah, the, are wrong, so the bears are right. The GameStop stuff, you know, that has reverberated to a lot of other parts of the market recently. Yeah, yeah, and a few quotes he has: uh, "Investing is a game where you compete against yourself more than anyone else." He also said, "You and your teams are the ones that will hurt you, not some shadowy figure trading against you." Do you think this? Do you think concerns over who's on the other side of the trade get overblown? Yeah, if you're on the long side, it doesn't matter. If if you're on if you're on the long side and you're in it for the actual intrinsic value of the business, so the cash it's going to generate and eventually hopefully return to shareholders or you sell through buybacks X or whatever. Um, if you're long a company, should not matter. And if you have you know whatever, I guess time if you're short, it, takes, it matters. Short definitely matters. If you got you got to understand that for sure. Because um, if someone can just you know, I think Tesla's a prime example of that. Yeah, it can be short for. All the reasons you might think are right, but if a tweet can yeah. mess up your timing, it's yeah, hard, uh, to, hard to do anything about it. But most I, of the people listening, I assume 99% of the people listening here just go long so yeah. or own, you know, buy stuff. Uh, so I'd say it really doesn't matter. You're just playing against the psychology yourself. Or that might be weird. So do you, yeah. do you think you would be better off not knowing who's on – who's either on your side, I guess, or – Shorting. Let's say 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 you're going long stock. Would you be? Would you feel better not knowing who else owns it? Oh yeah, I think it would help. Yeah, that's because that eliminates confirmation bias in yeah. a sense. No, yeah, it's the downside of, of these online communities where I think the benefit is idea generation. Um, you know, from our from even our show. That's kind of our whole point of doing this show is idea generation for us and others, and then through other of the other online communities. It's really great at idea generation, but the downside is definitely that where you get into groups, um, confirmation bias, 
someone that you someone doesn't like it and you don't think they're very intelligent so you think oh well they're blah 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 or someone's long something and you don't think they're investing analysis is usually very good so you're like you disregard that i've done that where i'm like oh this is dumb that person's investing uh yeah and it comes back to the that's a big one yeah i think we talked about this with jake taylor where if you don't like you are not part of a team you are not a part of any team you basically just want to it's not block out everything but it's almost like you don't want input once you've acquired the skills like this probably takes a decade or longer you know what I mean? If you acquired the skills that you're confident in, you actually want you actually want no input from anyone else because it can just cloud your judgment either way. But it's really tough to do, and honestly, there's downsides of not communicating with people. Uh, agreed. All right, uh, you got a last story here. Yeah. So this is a funny one a bit, but I kind of want to make it a serious discussion as well. I guess we hit on it earlier about the fraud stuff. So. Today, I kind of, this was the first thing I saw when I woke up. Well, no, no, I, I try not to. I try not to look at. I try to wait a little bit before looking at Twitter in the morning. Uh, but when I opened it for the first time to check anything, <laughs> I saw that Tom Brady posted a laser eyes photo. If you don't know uh, what that means, is that when you put those red eyes over yourself uh, online, it means that I think you're part of the crypto community you've kind of established yourself does like you're on the team you're on the team in the cult you might want to say um and this is one of the big and constant examples lately of non-finance people getting into crypto um he updated you know with that laser eyes image am i crazy or pessimistic or being too i don't even know what to describe but is this is all inadvertent pumping of crypto i mean is it ever going to come back to securities fraud? I mean, when did we start allowing people to do this with no repercussions? Well, there's not – I feel like there's not that many – there's not too much legislation around it because it's relatively new. There's not a framework for dealing with it. But I guess Tom there's Brady's not really a lot of precedence. Brady is not a good example because he didn't really do anything except the laser eyes as kind of a joke. I'd also – But there's other way worse examples. I'd also be concerned if I didn't like – subconsciously think that Tom Brady might be a decent portfolio manager. Uh, yeah, I think he might I, have the skills for it. Yeah, he seems a bit, well, I don't want to, he's obviously very good at what he does, but he seems, you know, he's a bit emotional. I think great, Belichick seems like a better portfolio manager just because it's the most unemotional at adding and subtracting assets, but, uh, or selling assets. I don't know. Um, yeah, the Brady's, the, the, Brady's the analyst. Belichick's the portfolio manager. I think the thing I find the funniest about it is, uh, you know, when you see this stuff, instead of people being like, the, the instant reaction from crypto community is, this is great. Like, this could drive our prices higher. Like, yeah. the more, the merrier. This is, like, it has nothing to do with the, uh, I don't know. No, the it has value nothing to do with, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the community I don't just know how get, you determine the value. Yeah, but. the community is just getting bigger. Everyone's joining this stuff i think the turning moment might have been august 2018 and if you don't i don't want to say what i'm referencing here because a lot of people like the company that uh that you know month is mentioned in but in august 2018 there was a certain tweet that i think kicked off the era of no securities fraud violations i think that might have been the turning point well the there's securities fraud violations but i think the role that social media has played in it, I think people are starting to realize that with the right social media backing, 
you can make a lot of money. Yeah, and what about Robin Hood with the like bark bark tweet like <laughs> uh, with the rocket that. ships? You know. Yeah, but then they but then their systems failed. Yeah, and they wouldn't let them trade. I mean, how many? Whatever. What about what about all this? SpaceX is launching the DOGE one mission to the moon, a real mission. I mean, I don't. That's not like. I don't think it ends well. Well, here's the thing. How is that not? I don't. You know what I mean? That's, maybe, this, but I don't really care, and I don't think it. I mean, shouldn't you though? We don't want frauds out there. Come on, it's does it have any bearings? No, on your results. No, 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 no. So then. Yes, it's the golden age of fraud, but we're not dabbling in that. So it doesn't really matter to me, at least. Well, I think... I, I mean, hate to see it. I hate to see people get exploited, but... Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, it sucks to see people get... Listen, if you're buying a digital coin because there's a, a, a moon, what whatever, some rocket Mission. going up, and yeah. someone tweeted that it's good, you deserve to be... I don't know. You deserve man. to lose your money. I mean, I hope. I have no sympathy for that. Uh, I no. You have to have sympathy for them. I have no sympathy for the people pumping it. I think they should get. I don't know what should happen, but it seems like come on, people are more innocent. You know what I mean? Like the people. Uh, yeah, are, you I guess. know what I mean. They don't know what's happening. I guess if I were introduced to finance today. I, maybe maybe it's easier to go down the wrong path. So maybe yeah, I should have a little more sympathy. That, and the thing that happens is people, once they say they get screwed out of 90% of their money, and it's a small amount, so it's not a big deal, but then they think that the whole securities market is a fraud. You know what I mean? And they're like, oh, I'm never going to do that stuff again. And then they ruin their whole retirement, whatever. I don't. I just think it's setting up terrible incentives. And it's just, pump, you know, yeah. People are expecting to get rich quick. I just, there's just no way it ends well. I, I, I'm honestly on the Munger. I'm on, almost at the Munger point of it where it's all just like, it's just you have no respect for it. It's just all bad. Yeah. But <laughs> uh, who knows? All I right. could totally be wrong. Before we wrap up the show, a uh, little update. Uh, I've been reading the Wall Street Journal for a week now. As you know, uh-huh. I subscribe to the print edition. Still haven't gotten the physical print. Apparently delivery to apartments is not easy. Um, yeah, I was looking. I'm looking forward to the second the second hand on the print. So yeah, uh, so once I get that figured out, good customer support, mildly good customer support though. <laughs> so working on that. Uh, but yeah, I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> Plenty of good tidbits. I might keep this around for the rest of my life. Um, but that's gonna do it. Thank you all for listening. Thanks again to Honorbond for coming on the show. Uh, yeah, we are general partners at Arch Capital, uh, so we may have. Uh, secure positions clients, in the securities clients. discussed. Clients might have positions in the securities discussed on the show. We are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We appreciate you guys listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>